This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is now available wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, the professor is senior advisor of Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're here back live in the studio. I think, Professor, this is our first time back on Wharton's campus. We say we're live from Wharton, but this is the first time we're back at the same table on on campus. We have Bob Pisani, who is a senior markets correspondent at CNBC, the professor's favorite, uh, I would think it's, fa- it's accurate to say, oh, favorite. favorite radio uh, TV station and, and broadcasting. Bob, welcome here to campus and behind the markets. Thank you, Jeremy. So great to be here. Uh, you know, 35 years ago, uh, my father and I were adjuncts here. My father was a, a real estate developer in Philadelphia and was very good friends with the head of the Wharton School, the head of the real estate center of the Wharton School at the time. And we were adjuncts for four years, taught a course here. So I have a lot of fond memories of being Zucker? here. Bill Zucker, that's yeah. right. A wonderful okay. man. He yeah. was the head of the real estate center for many, many years. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's just wonderful to watch the Wharton School grow and in influence now. It's really almost a mini corporation. It's a business by itself. It's not just teaching young people business skills. It teaches business leaders around the country. So it's I'm, I'm very proud to have a very small affiliation with that many, many years ago. Well, it's good to be on campus. Professor, this was a big week for the markets, uh, big week for data and the Fed. Uh, and I know you have some feelings on what's happening <laughs> at the Fed. I have some uh, minor feelings about that. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I'm very upset I, I, uh, with the Fed. Um, uh, I, I think they're totally wrong, and I'm going to I'm going to go into it in terms of uh, what they project. Uh, I, I would first like to say that uh, the dot plots, which gets everyone disturbed, um, is not really worth the paper that it's written on. Uh, a year ago, okay, so in the December 2021 meeting, what did they project the Fed funds rate would be? this December, where we sit today. Well, all but two, so 17, said less than 1%. And the real hawkish ones said one and a quarter percent, between one and one and a quarter percent. How right were they? I was calling for it. I said, you got to go at least 3% or more. And it was considered crazy back then. Now, we have the reverse. Only two are calling for less than 5% by the end of next year. And 17 um, are, are calling for um, 5% or more. Well, I think they are as wrong on the upside for 2023 as they were um, way underestimating uh, for this year. Um, let me, let me give the the principal reasons here. Um, uh, one is actually uh, relatively new that I haven't discussed before, but I want to talk about something that we have been discussing, Jeremy and I am not, you know, every week I, I give a podcast is the distorted housing inflation data that, uh, is in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, a computation. Um, I, I mean, I brought this up for two years. Uh, it's based on a way long distributed average of past increases in prices, past increases in rents, uh, that gives you a very distorted view of inflation. Uh, one in, let, let me just give you the most important statistic here from March, 2020, until March of this year, 24 months, the Case-Shiller 
the best known and, in my opinion, best constructed of all housing indices showed that the average price of a home was up 45 and a half percent in the United States over that period. What did the housing sector of the consumer price index say? 11. At that time also, current rental indexes that are uh, computed by such uh, firms as Zillow, Apartment List, and others showed a 35 to 40 percent increase. What did the Bureau of Labor Statistics say? 10. So what? because of the fact that they're so lagged and use averages, they way understated, way understated both overall and core inflation in 2021. Um, and because of the catch-up, they are way overstating inflation and core inflation going in 2022 and particular going in 2022. 23. Now, don't don't you think, though, that Powell knows that and in a way has acknowledged that it, it, during his presser this week, he gave what I call a PCE light discussion where he said, OK, so here's what matters in the PCE. There's the, the goods part and we see some progress there. There's the housing part. And he specifically mentioned the lagging effects there. He basically, without giving a nod yeah, to yes, you, I, did I, and, I, and I absolutely agree with you. I heard him and he said, yes, at the middle of the year and then said, maybe we will consider that at the middle of the year when we see the lag effects that are actually occurring today and yesterday. Yeah. And I mean, that, we're going to wait until those lag effects come in. That was definitely the thrust of that. We will begin to see improvement. But just a minute, the real improvement is, is happening today. By, by the way, we have only been nine months since tightening began in March of this year. In March of this year, he basically, the housing market has now turned down. Commodities have definitely turned down. Um, uh, shipping rates, cargo rates, freight rates yeah. have all turned down. I mean, I can go on right. and on. All the goods markets have turned down. The housing sector has turned down. Okay. But, but now we get to the wages. But finally, right. He mentioned services. And the wages is what really freaks Well, but don't forget, housing is part of the services, which distort the services. But, but let's take the wage sector. But I want to go to your point about housing. Should Are you suggesting <coughs> they should go to some kind of more real-time oh, industry of housing and should abandon the traditional method? You know, there are many experts, Bob, that actually uh, – I mean, not even experts. I mean, people have been, basically supported them that if you computed real housing data in 2021, you would have shown inflation of 10 to 12 percent, and the, the Fed would have acted much sooner than it did. I mean, it was used. It was. It was. It was using the case. Well, it's not all that bad, and we're getting a couple little jumps, which they, you know, wrongly, you know, uh, attributed to the the supply side, et cetera, and so on. But had they actually seen what was happening in the the two year increase from March twenty twenty until March of this year? was the greatest two-year right. increase but in But I want to get years. to the point here, which is you feel the Fed should have very – should go more to a real-time indicator. There's, Absolutely. A, there's a policy point here that you're trying to make. Uh, I'm saying they should go to some mix of their own – there's in the own what's called the Federal Housing Agency Index – which is a federal one. It mirrors, but I, the case sure they should go for that. They should use apartment list and, and what, Zillow for the others. What rational reason would they have for objecting to this? You were had Bullard on a few weeks ago. You were. You it made it some didn't news seem to understand that? the point. I mean, this is the rational reason. Well, this is the rational reason that they give, which is, in my way, absolutely fallacious. Well, don't forget, if you had an apartment for two years and you're not feeling the inflation until the rate goes up. That's, 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 now, now, what's fallacious about that? So, the, in, by that reasoning, how should we measure inflation in the automobiles? The average auto, uh, individual buys an automobile every eight years. All right? He or she doesn't experience that in, increase for eight years. Is that how they compute the automobile? Pricing? No. Yeah. It's only the new automobiles that are sold those years. Do you think this is a factor in why the Fed is 
forecasts are so wrong. You mentioned a very specific thing about the dot plots being wrong. And yet, and I discussed this in the book, it's amazing. The, the Fed has a terrible track record oh, yeah, of forecasting absolutely. the future. They even have one, I forget which one, Kansas City or one of the Feds actually did a paper about how terrible their forecast yeah, so, actually so is. Th- this is an interesting question. You're not just talking about a specific point here about the dot plots this year being wrong from last year. In general, they're bad. In uh, general, Yeah, well, I mentioned in my own book, I, I, I talk about uh, you know, on the verge of when everything was collapsing in the financial crisis, uh, they had their staff come in and you know tell Bernanke we do we in no way see an, uh, a recession and yet, coming. And we also know economists are terrible at predicting yeah, the future. they're no better. And the Federal Reserve is no no, no better. better. What what is it that creates this this dissonance? Here? Well, maybe we should look at the inversion of the uh, of the term structure. Right, it's a single best single indicator of recession. That we have, I, I mean, the market doesn't believe Powell on the narrative. If it's uh, I mean, below. it's clear now the power, that the market is rejecting the Powell narrative. And I want to get to wages, but I'm putting that aside because that's critical. So that's the last remaining little vestige that he's trying uh, to argue. But I, I, I re, you go through. Bullard, after the financial crisis, he's always was one that pointed, and you know, he's super hawk. He was always the one that pointed to the term structure. And they always, he said, whenever a discussion came up and I was at these FOMC meetings, they always explained it away. And I, you know, when they did the thing, I always said, okay, okay. He said, he said, fool me once, fool me twice. You're not going to fool me again. The term structure is going to mean something to me. Well, Jim, are you listening Term structure is inverted. When he was on our show, he tried to say, well, yeah, the term structure really is inverted, but now the real term structure isn't inverted or it's only inverted here. I mean, I guess the question is, I mean, what, what, what is all of a sudden they the change? Let's change the narrative when when I, yeah. you know, it's how not do we mine. get the Federal Reserve to improve their forecasting? In fact, how do well, we get everybody to improve their forecasting in general? One of the things you well, and I agree I, on. I, I, my, my, if they just had up to date indexes, they would have done better, I think. I mean, I don't think they could have ignored the inflation as long as they did if they had up-to-date. I'm just, that's not even forecasting. That's saying use up-to-date data. They keep saying this, two, getting back to 2%. And one of your points, this is related to housing, but also just the overall inflation is like, we need to get to 2% before we stop hiking. But your point is, if you look at the forward-looking data, inflation's already below oh, 2%. Oh, yeah, it's already. I mean, if you actually put the actual behavior of the housing index, last three months inflation is negative. Yeah. I mean- So you I mean, think this debate about whether it's 2% or some people and, have been arguing and, and, 3% and, and, is, and, and, is and academic? And still quotes year over year, which is the most ridiculous piece of data that you could ever have to talk about forward-looking inflation. Oh, yeah, and in, um, in Powell said, and 6%, and 6% is, is uh, too high because you're looking at year over. But that's not the forward-looking. And certainly, it's not the forward-looking with current data. Of course, unfortunately, because of the terrible lag in that housing index, <laughs> you're going to have that contribute 0.6%, 0.5%, 0.6%, 0.7%, month after month after month, when it should be negative, it'll be a big positive, and you know it's 38 to 40 percent of core CPI. Whoa, when you're that distorted, what, what kind of picture are you getting there? So we're, if you were running the Fed right now, in, in terms of housing, the, what data would you use and what data would we be, we, well, we be using you for would be just wages, using for those example. current data series that I, that I pointed out? And, that, and there's no dispute about those. I mean, it's not like, oh, we don't think those are accurate. They never said anything like that. They never said it. Now, why did the Bureau of Labor Statistics go to such a lag? I won't go into that. There's a lot of history on that, and that's not important right now. But it unfortunately has given them a very distorted view of what inflation has been and what it is So if they went to more up-to-date or or, uh, forward-looking statistics, you think it would improve their forecasting accuracy too? I think... I, I think it very well might. I mean, because right now they're looking at, uh, you know, CPIs and CPI cores that are still going up and, and claiming, oh, we haven't stopped inflation. Um, I mean, if they, and again, if they used up to date, they wouldn't be saying that. So maybe they would think, well, we know there's a lot of inertia in the inflation process. So by looking at more current ones that are actually going down, it would 
improve their prediction of what inflation is going to be going forward. Do you sense there's any debate about this? I mean, the Federal Reserve theoretically employs the best economists in the country. Surely we're not discussing something would, they have would, never I had. I would stress anymore. the word theoretically. <laughs> okay. The, uh, <laughs> I have to be more politic about this, uh, being a journalist, but uh, the, it, theoretically they have the best <laughs> economists in the country. But they don't. It's uh, been, and, 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 and Bob, I've mentioned this many times, it has been very disappointing to me I mean, 19 members of the FOMC. Again, no dissents this year. Was there any dissent this year? I mean, this is one of the most tumultuous times in monetary policy we had. Is there any voice? Shouldn't there be maybe one or two voices that voice my concern? Or some voices maybe on the other side? Is there any any dissent? The point being, your side being that inflation has in fact peaked and we ought to consider yeah. being less aggressive. And I'm also railing against the groupthink that totally dominates the Fed. There seems to be no independent spokesman. There's no other side. There used well, to well, be. Is this, is this a characteristic of, of the fact that inflation is so overwhelming that they've been no, uh, they, they've been forced into groupthink? Or the, is this an historical problem with the Fed? It's a historical Reserve? problem. And it's also a selection problem of who they are selecting as board members and who gets selected as the bank presidents. Um, and 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 um, you think there should be more diversity? Oh, opinion. absolutely. Should we have people? And here, I just don't mean diversity <laughs> the way we talk about diversity yeah, today. We need diversity. You mean intellectual diversity. We need intellectual diversity on yeah. that. I mean, you know. So how far do we go with that? Do we bring back the people who want the gold standard? No, I mean no. I mean that's that's that that's crazy. But but you know what? I almost you know I won't go into. I got a lot of flack because I wrote a Wall Street Journal article supporting Steve Moore, and I said I, I disagree with a lot. And that was a Trump nominee for the board. I said I dis, and then he got into big troubles with it. We didn't know about all anything, all his alimony, non-payments, or whatever. Anyways, um, I said I disagree with a lot of what he said, but I said we need fresh air in the Fed. We're going to get stuck with groupthink. I want an independent voice, and that I said that was way pre-COVID, way before this. All these problems came up. He wasn't the greatest choice at all, but he was a different choice. Uh. And, and uh, what about people who just kind of move around? I mean, it's well known Bullard kind of moved around on the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I was very disappointed because I thought, and the St. Louis Fed, you know, St. Louis Fed used to, you see, the, the tradition I grew up, I mean, I got my PhD at MIT, Keynesian. Very Keynesian. Then I went to Chicago. It's not that I read for new The opposite everything. of Keynesian. And then, of course, the I got both. So I, I'm a very eclectic economist. I regard myself as taking the best of both traditions. But the monetar tradition, monetarism, that says you got to look at that money supply as at least one of your factors in judging inflation is completely gone from the Fed. Completely gone. And it totally, when I saw that explosion of them, by the way, we're talking about 45% increases in, in housing prices. Is it not a, a um, uh, coincidence that the money supply was up 45% during those exact same 12 months? No. And then Powell gets on and says, oh, yeah, our studies have shown there isn't a close relationship between the money supply. I said, well, hey, that's not my studies. I've been studying this for 50 years. Yeah, I don't and know so what the study, idea. Well, well, I don't know what studies he's talking about. So the old adage, inflation is everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Well, that's maybe too grew. extreme. You see, that was, I mean, that that, that was no, the Friedman. Friedman yeah. But can you at least consider? Did anyone did 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 Powell during any time engineering the greatest monetary explosion in our history, the greatest two year increase in the money supply? In our history, I'm going back to the Civil War. Did he ever once mention that in any news conference? No. No. We, we, you missed uh, the live interaction with the two Cleveland Fed people just, uh, yeah. maybe it was two weeks, I last was, two uh, weeks. I was on a plane. Yeah. We, we, I asked this money supply question to them, and their comment back was, you know, they sort of. I, I mentioned that Loretta commented on, from the Cleveland Fed, commented on what Powell said. And his comment was that we see some explanation between internationals and the relative difference in money supply between countries could explain some of it, but we don't see it. So then I sent him a copy of the book. We'll no, see if they read well, it. Well, yeah, because well, I, 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 I mean, in book, my then. book, I, I just showed, I mean, it is not true year for year. I mean, and Friedman was one of the first to say, you're not going to find a very close year to year. 
He, he said, if you have an explosion of money and within 18 to 24 months, you're going to see it, which is exactly what he had. I mean, I mean, that was like, he said, that you'll see right away. He said, over, it's over long periods of time, you will absolutely see that relationship come in um, and whenever you have a very big increase in money. But let's, let's get to the wage situation because this is his last little hangout of, of, of justification for, for the tightness that he has. Wages are increasing too fast. Oh, how come... If you take a look at that average hourly wage, which he looks at, it has increased by less than inflation over the last 24 months. Over the last, oh, now we've got 30 months because it's two and a half years since COVID. How, how can it cause inflation if it's increased less? How can you say it's increasing too fast when the average worker's real wage has gone down anywhere from 2 to 5% over that period? How can you say that? Yes, last month it, it and last month finally when it, w- it went a little bit above the inflation rate and that was pointed out. But over the two and a half years, it hasn't. People are catching up because they're stuck in the, you know these contracts with, with corporations that keep on three four percent. Yeah, you know, you did get cheated a little way, way and we you know we made record profits. So we're now we're going to give you four five six percent and for, oh my God, we can't do that because that'll perpetuate six percent going all the way down. That's absolutely insanity. But I want to talk about something else. He mentions, so he brought up a new topic. He Did you hear about the structural shift in labor? You heard that in yeah. his talk? Really interesting. He said, you know, we, we, we the, the supply of labor uh, seems now to be less than it was before. We seem to have a structural shift. You know, I, 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 I always thought that. I never thought the participation rate was coming back up to where it was before. Structural shift uh, in, in the supply way. All right. If that's, that's a real supply factor, what, what has to happen if there's a shift downward in supply of labor? E- Economics 101. The wages real wages have to go up. Yeah. That's a supply factor. Is the Fed designed... To, is the Fed supposed to act on supply factors? No. No, absolutely not. Not structural factors. That's but, not but what he, our Fed does. But he did acknowledge. He talks about those. But, the, but then the, he's saying, I don't mar- want the wages to go up. Rate. He's saying, I don't want the wages are going up and, and they're structural factors and I'm, I'm going to set policy to make sure they don't go up. He's, he talked about the effects of COVID, increasing retirement, right. reducing labor. That's right. The and, and what has to happen to real wages as a result? And is that something the Fed should You're squeeze down? You're saying that is not their job. No. Well, if their job is combating inflation and it does, it does. <sighs> but, 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 I mean, well, I don't know we're talking well, semantics Let here. me give you an example. Suppose, suppose there was a terrible drought and, and the wheat crop fell by 50%. What would happen to wheat prices? It'd go up. Uh, okay, that's a supply factor completely, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Is the Fed supposed to squeeze that down so the wheat price gets down, back down to where it was before? Um, in the manner you describe it, no, but when they do have a dual mandate that talks about inflation and in, improving uh, uh, the job I, I, market, I that's, you know, what are you going to, what are they supposed I, I, to say I, I, to that? I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I understand If he wants that. to make that intellectual but distinction, then why, fine. Then, then why did he, you know, defer on supply factors Factors and not raise rates because he claimed, oh, these are supply factors back then. Now he's talking about maybe these are supply factors and we're going to do something so what, about it. So what inflation aspect should they pay attention to? Then? Well, if, well, given that their mandate you, is well, inflation. You know, on our show, Jim Bullard from the Federal Reserve told us, and we, we, have, we could have the quote. Do you, I asked him, do you look at wages? He said, no, I don't believe in the wages source of inflation. I was surprised. He remember when he said that, Jeremy? Yes. He said I didn't. He said, "Oh, you don't. All right. Well, then you're not so you're you're not buying the last vestige of Powell's justification for his overly tight policy." Now, I didn't say it that way or not because I didn't expect to see what I'm seeing now. But basically, that was you know Powell himself before the pandemic. In congressional testimony before the Senate Banking Committee, he was asked about, well, would you believe in the Phillips curve anymore? He said, no, our our studies have shown that that effect is basically, uh, you know, not there and that that is not a reliable source in terms of tightness of the labor market and overall inflation in the economy. That was what he said in 2019. We can bring out that. Doesn't sound like he believes his own testimony now, does it? 
You want me to go on? Uh, uh, Let's go back to what it means for the equity markets here, Professor. Because so, <laughs> you, so I just want I, the problem here is you're sort of creating a, a, a logical fallacy for the Fed. The Fed's job is to fight inflation, which is he fought and, and, so, and successfully and put an end to it. Right, and you can't play sort of whack a mole with no, like deciding no, every time no, that, what's yeah, the source and, of inflation and, and, and if it's, I, if it's yeah, a supply yeah, problem, I'm you're going to ignore it. That there might be someone in those services that they need to hire a little bit of rising prices. And and everything and falling prices, you've got to let the chips. You know, you you produced a tremendous amount of money. All right, that's caused inflation through the pipeline. We're not squeezing prices to the pre-COVID levels, and for, never has the Fed suggested that. They keep on talking about going back to a two percent mandate. Now we could talk mm -hmm. about that, but you, going back to a two percent mandate requires them to increase the money supply at five percent a year. And if you take a look at the money supply, and I pointed this out a number of times, by the way, the money supply declined from March of this year, this is when everything pivoted, from March of this year until now, is the greatest eight-month decline in the money supply in over 70 years. You're talking about the money supply, not, money the, supply. not the Fed's balance sheet. No, not the Fed's balance sheet, because, because Friedman... And the monitors were very clear. It's not the Fed's balance sheet that counts. It's the M2. It's the amount of money market funds, demand deposits, savings accounts, CDs, all those liabilities, central bank, money market mutual funds, and all that liquidity, not the excess reserves, none. It's excluded. It always has been excluded. And Friedman was very insistent you do not include that into money. And that has gone down. I, it's shockingly gone down. We've never seen a contraction of liquidity like this in a post-World War II period. And what do you attribute this to? A super tight policy yeah. and the anticipation. Everyone's taking their money out of the banks and the banks aren't extending the loans. Um, they, going to treasuries, getting interest. Oh, God. You know, the, you know, yeah. you know what's going to happen to the Fed's profit loss this year? For, for, for what, 50 years the Fed was running a profit, never had to go for a for a, um, uh, a supplement from the federal government to run, they are going to be paying us so much in their interest on reserves that they're, they're going to need an appropriation from Congress for the first time. Boy, Congress is going to come to our gym. This is the first time you've come, and you're seeking $100 billion because that's your loss this year? Yep. Okay. That's another issue. I'm going to just tell you. Um, I'm not, but the important issue is the contraction of the money supply at a record rate. Um, a record rate. That's, that's what sounded me the alarm in June. That, in June when I, you know, people were, you know, I remember when it was on CNBC, Scott Wapner you know, said, oh, J Jeremy, are you all pleased about how you know, rapidly the Fed is tightening? I said, well, I'm going to tell you something, Scott. I actually think they're tightening too much. And he, he, he did a double take. He said, just a minute, you were the one that said they weren't doing anything. Now you're saying they're doing I was, yep, I'm really worried about that. And what I, I said, I'm seeing the money supply go down. I've never seen that before. They've got to start talking about easing off at some point relatively too. Instead, he talks about it. it instead, which is absolutely incredible to me, he said, and every so participant... The, should the Fed look at the money supply? I don't think yes. they do look at the well, money supply. Well, they don't, unfortunately. Or they wouldn't, if they had looked at the money supply, they wouldn't have made all the mistakes so that's that another they factor did. that they should go forward oh, Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the get. factors they should look at. But, you know, what is also absolutely incredible is, you know, from, you know, um, from September to December, the, the data yeah. for me on inflation could not have been more favorable. And I can look at everything. Instead, what happens... What does is, what is Powell say? Oh, we've all been disappointed in what we've seen from September to December. What? Yeah. Let's talk a little about what this means for the stock market. Hey, I want to wrap up the Fed, Professor, for the first half and go to the markets and then come to Bob's book in the second half. Yeah, all right. So, well, if the Fed is going to be as anywhere near as tight as it said, it's definitely going to make a recession and it's definitely going to send the stock market down um, until... The data gets bad enough until they finally pit it. It's like it took months too long for them to finally decide that inflation was real. Who knows how many months it's going to take. But until that happens, 
uh, the stock market is going to struggle tremendously. So what we saw this week is the soft landing crowd really got hit on the chin. Uh, there, well, because it was also the, the one that says that uh, the, the Fed would see the light. The soft landing crowd, which, which actually I was kind of part of, was saying, oh, I, they're going to see the light with all the data coming in about how prices are really going down. No, it doesn't appear that they've seen that at all. Yeah. Why are, why are they so terrible? terrified of inflation because of what happened in the 70s. Yeah, somebody, that's a false narrative. So, somebody too. once they, said they to compared, me that they not only do they want to make sure it's dead, inflation is they dead, they want, to pump, they want to pump more bullets into the dead yeah, body. Which is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> and unnecessary. We do not have... A, the money supply well, never went down. Isn't that the down, answer, though? Never went down in the 70s. But we they had inflationary seem terrified about uh, no, inflation. It, it's, the, it's, it's the same false narratives that they believed in in 2021. Someone feeds them a narrative... And then they go with that. I mean, Powell starts off all the time with that narrative. If you, I've looked at the data. It is not at all like 1971 or the 70s. We had 15 years of double-digit money growth. We never had a decline in the money supply. Yes, there were a couple of periods where Fed funds went down, but they kept on pouring money into the system. And inflationary expectations were out of sight at that point. Not, not today. I'm... Uh, I mean, to the, this comparison with the 70s is a false one, but still pursued. I mean, they get into narratives that is uninformed. So where the, the point being that the, he, has, he has said repeatedly, once inflation gets away from you, it's very difficult to put the genie right. back in the bottle. Correct. And so they seem intent on making sure this thing is as dead as possible. Uh, and, and the point being that it's going to lead what to a very, very that severe could, recession. What, what do they think is going to happen? It's, uh, you know, that there's going to be a, a massive, uh, you know, crypto speculation as soon as they, uh, or our housing market's going to turn around. By the way, the housing market is very inertial. Yeah. And the mortgage rate may go down to 5 per, 5% from 6 and that'll, that'll spark another 40% increase. I mean, everything, these are real. I mean, we're going to have 10 to 15% decline in housing, um, yeah. in my opinion. And that is, you know, what, what it's going to so be in this the, the, What's happened here, just to pivot to the stock market briefly, the, the problem we see this week is the soft landing crowd has had a little bit of ascendancy in the last couple months. Uh, and if if you believe in a slightly harder landing, all of a sudden, uh, you know, if you do even a 6% decline in earnings, the market's a 19-time multiple now forward for 2023. That's very high. And we never see multiples over 18. Yeah, but you shouldn't, you so, shouldn't, but you shouldn't put a multiple on a, quote, recession level of earnings. I mean, in fact, if you go in history, you should have a 20 to 22 multiple on recession levels of earnings because they, they bounce back. You know, people tell me that they're putting average multiples on recession level earnings. I said that has never been right in stock market history ever. It might be right for 2024 to expect Why? a dramatic bounce back. I mean, but, but you don't I mean, yeah, look at their long lived. The value of it's only 5 percent of the value of a stock is its earnings in one year. A 20 P.E. ratio of stocks, that's 5%. That's simple math 101. I mean, so, you know, drop those earnings by 20% or 40%. As long as you bounce back, the effect on prices is minimal. We have traditionally bounced back after no. We have always bounced back. Yeah. I think there's only eight, <laughs> let's, uh, eight <laughs> times where we've had 20% drops in the S&P. I mean, and but we've always bounced 60% back. 60% of the right, time, it, within a year, it yeah. bounces back. We have Bob Pisani in the yeah. studio, live for the air with Professor Siegel with yeah. us. We're going to talk about Bob's new book, Shut Up and Keep Talking. Yeah. Uh, and so, Professor, it's been great commentary to start the show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. I guess one of the starting points could be is uh, we do see Professor Siegel quoted throughout the book. How, was the, how has Professor Siegel influenced you and... In, in, uh, in your journey? Well, when I met with the publisher, I, I'm 32 years at CNBC, and after a while, I, it's very unusual to be at one job. I've been stocks correspondent for 25 years, going on 26 years, and not many people stay that long in a journalism beat or in anything. Uh, and uh, I've been feeling the need for a bit of a career summary and what I have learned uh, covering markets for 30 years. And I met with the publisher and they said, look, we, we are very interested in this book, but we don't want a financial history. We want your intersection 
because you were on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and at CNBC, two unusual positions for a long time. We want to know how you intersected with financial history. We understand you're going to do financial history, but we want we want stories. We want how you reported things, etc. And so I go back, and this was uh, three years ago, and I go look and rummage around my library because you make a list of what you believe in. Like, what do you believe in? And then you think, well, why do I believe this? How, how long have I believed this? I wasn't born this way. I learned this from somebody in the process of becoming, working at CNBC first as a real estate correspondent and then as a stocks correspondent. I learned from real estate. I learned from my father. Uh, but the stock beat, um, I learned from various people. So I looked and thought and thought. And then I came up with four or five people that really were the people I always go back to. Uh, one of them was uh, Charlie Ellis, who wrote uh, uh, Winning the Losers Game about basically the inability of uh, active management to work. He was famous in the 70s, still is. Jack Bogle, uh, probably the most influential person, wrote Common Sense on Mutual Funds, the founder of Vanguard. Uh, uh, Burton Malkiel wrote A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And Jeremy Siegel uh, for Stocks in the Long Run. And I was rummaging around in my library, and here's what I found. The classic first edition. This is the first edition. Obviously, we're on we're on radio here, but this is the first edition. It's in my library, uh, and it was one of the books that I pulled out. Uh, and I had the probably the later edition in, in 1997 when I became stocks correspondent. But I realized those four or five books. Another one would be Robert Schiller, Irrational Exuberance, yes. which had a big influence on 2000 and uh, helped open my eyes about behavioral economics. But those five people intellectually were the foundation for what everything I know. So we have an 815 morning meeting on CNBC every day. And I, I talk all the time about historical developments in the stock market, P ratios, things like that. And I realized like I, this didn't spring out of my head out of nowhere. It came from being around people like him. So I've never taken Professor Siegel's class, but I'm a student of his. Uh, and you know, younger people who watch CNBC, they come on and they love listening and watching Jeremy Siegel because he's so animated and he's so passionate as you see here uh, and he, he waves his arms around and leans his head too close to the camera's face is covering the whole screen and he's screaming about the Federal Reserve and everybody loves hearing Professor Siegel and I remind people you know it's fun because Jeremy is very animated and he's entertaining to watch but he's famous for a reason he's not famous for you know waving his arms around and screaming at the Federal Reserve he's famous because he made very important academic contributions to the history of finance a long time ago. Uh, a lot of this early data about stocks and uh, bond performance going back to the 1800s is a lot of original research uh, that he did. Obviously, it doesn't come out of nowhere. He came from somewhere too, but he made very important financial contributions, so important that when I had to figure out how to, what are my memories, there were only four or five, and he's, he's one of them. So people who don't quite understand the stock market or who think like, you know, GameStop is just a bunch of people getting together and hodling. I said, why don't you just read some fundamentally important books? And I tell them, here's the four or five that mattered to me. And I get paid to talk about this stuff. So time and again, I go back to the book. And when Professor announced, uh, I, I had dinner with him two or three years ago because I was writing the book and I was going around to my friends, Charlie Ellis. You mentioned that we both live in Philly. We live in Philly. How many, a few blocks from each yes, other? Yes, Charlie Ellis and Bert Malkiel. And I went to them and I went to Professor Siegel. I had dinner with him. And I said, look, I'm, I'm writing a book. I just... I, I got to know, we're still good on all of this stuff from 30 years ago that you were doing. You, we're okay. He said, oh, Bob, I got a new book coming. I was so excited because he's updated the book. This was three years ago. And yes, we're good. Everything's good. So it was very a great relief to me to go on the, the fundamental things that I really believe in about market timing, history, staying invested, stocks for the long term. Literally, that phrase itself is what you really want to know. Um, made me very happy. So I decided, uh, I went ahead and finished the book. And the book is basically a summary of how I kind of look at the world as a long-term investor. We can talk about that. But it's based on what the principles that he was writing about and Burton Malkiel was writing about. I'm a student of his. I, you know, I uh, th thank you, Bob. And, and by the way, it, it, it's an interesting fact um, uh, the 6.7% annual after inflation rate of return average of stock returns that is in that first edition, data through 1992. From 1990 through, through the bear market, June 30th this year, 
the real return on stocks is 6.7%. It's, it's, exactly it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the next 30 years, it hit exactly the long-run average uh, that, that we had. And uh, I, I remember, I, you know, I, I don't like, I, you know, I'm not, don't generally comment on meme stocks or cryptos or things like that. One, one person said, Dr. Siegel, what do you think of the people buying meme stocks? Now, this is, you know, back la- a year ago. And I said, I don't think they're going to be happy in the long run with their results. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what is so amazing because when that happened, when GameStop happened, I mean, I just got an avalanche because I talk on a fundamental basis. And I mentioned Siegel yeah. all the time. And they say, so what do you think now, Bob? Huh? What about fundamental analysis? Doesn't mean that much, does it? And I said, you know, if you get enough people together, remember Arch Crawford? The, we had a fellow on who did astrology picking with with, with pick stocks with astrology the moon is in venus by microsoft i'm not kidding he was very popular on our air in the 1990s and he had a following (laughs) arch crawford if you if you get enough people together who want to buy things based on sunspots yeah the sunspot theory uh, has been written about of the business cycle um and um, then someone tried to justify it by sunspots cool the air a little bit because they don't let the sun in, and Fine. then it changes the crop yield. And you know they right. always have a quasi right. uh, explanation. And you're going to pick stocks based on this, really. <laughs> but I go back to the point, and I always bring up the prospectus for the Dutch East India Company. It's mm. 1602, the first real modern stock company. And in their prospectus, they say very clearly, "This is why you want to buy our stock. We are taking the. They control the spice trade in, in the Moluccas and Malaysia." They were bringing the spices back, and they said, we are going to sell the spices and distribute the profits to our shareholders. Well, there is the, the birth of fundamental analysis. The question is, well, how? what are they going to bring back? What percentage are successfully brought back, and how much can they sell it for? That's the birth of fundamental analysis. And then there were people who didn't know what was going on, but they owned shares. They wanted to sell before the ships came in. They just looked at what other people were the prices they were getting, and they figured out, could I get more or less at this? And that's, there's technical analysis. You can see sort of analysis coming out of this. But the point is, the bargain was, we're taking this, we're going to bring in, take the risk, take the spices, sell them, and we're going to distribute the profits. And today, that is still well, the basis Bob, under it, which it you own stocks. It goes back to, you know, Warren Buffett, who says in the, in the, in the, in the, in the short run, the stock market is a voting machine, and in the long run, it's a weighing machine. Yeah. In other words, the fundamentals will out in the long run. It's a voting yep. machine in the short run. It'll go up and down. And that, of course, corresponds exactly with you know Bob Schiller's work, excess volatility of the stock market. It moves too much, right. just like we were talking about in the first half. If there's a recession and earnings drop 20%, that doesn't mean stocks should drop 20%. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that, it, that, in fact, that's wrong. But the fact that emotionally they right. they do sets up a tremendous opportunities for people in the future, but that's the excess volatility of yeah. the stock market. It, that's a very good point to make, because and Schiller had a big influence on me, because he, he pointed this out in the 1980s, that the, the volatility of the stock market is too high if you simply assume fundamental analysis. Mm-hmm. That was and, one of the classic papers, the, uh, you know, the excess volatility. Uh, one of the things that got into the Nobel Prize. Yeah, and uh. it was a brilliant observation, because you can be at peace with yourself, because you're not so afraid about efficient market hypothesis, that you realize there is some kind of irrational component on top of the market that would account for that excess volatility. And once you understand that, it's a matter of understanding the nature of that irrational behavior. But the the point I keep getting at, and one thing I'm really interested in, is um, financial literacy and explaining to people the nature of the stock market, which is why your book is so useful, because you look at it and you can see 72% of the time the S&P 500 tends to go up. And over long-term, stocks outperform bonds, and you explain this uh, in your book. And I go out and I talk to people. I put in my PowerPoint presentation. I just take stuff out of your book and put it up. And I said, they say, oh, my God, the stock market goes up three out of four years. Why is this? And if you do 10-year periods, it's like 98% of the time. And as you keep on increasing the period, the the percentage of time stocks outperform bonds virtually goes to 100. But why? The question, some student always says, why? And I say, well, look, this has to do with the nature of capital. Particularly the fact we have market capitalism in the United States, slightly different than state capitalism is practiced in other places. But market capitalism, where individuals and corporations control the means of production, tend to be more efficient allocators of capital. This is sort of well. It way also I do this. has to do with just the risk. Don't forget that the the, uh, the stockholder gets the residual after the bondholder is paid. 
There's no question that in the short run, bonds are more stable and people will cling to bonds. The trouble is that people cling to bonds even if they're planning a long-term portfolio. I don't, you know, if you're 85 or 90, yeah, you got to be mostly in bonds. But when you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, I mean, I, you know, they they cling to bonds because they don't go down as much in in, in recessions, and then they never get to the long-run right. returns. But I'm talking about more of a philosophical point, like why does the stock market go up? Because wh- why, for example, is capitalism a more efficient allocator uh, of capital, more efficient uh, uh, economic system than socialism or uh, or authoritarianism? Uh, yeah, well, I want to I mean, go back to the more fundamental point about uh, why why is our capitalist system so efficient at allocating capital and the stock market is a means of distributing the yeah, profits. Yeah, it from is. That. It, it it does. The, I mean, countries that got rid of the stock market. Don't forget when when you know communism came over the land, um, all the countries, Russia, China, and everyone else, stopped their stock markets. They said, "Oh, that's just yeah. a speculative casino," and virtually all the con- <laughs> Those countries had to go back because it was mm. such a good allocator of capital. They, you look know, at even China, one-party communist system. They never deviated. Russia is another situation, but they they have a stock market. That yep. was, uh, you know, Marx said, close them all down. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Now we've closed ourselves down on, on Russia. Where we've, we've <laughs> yeah, Russia is an, another. Left. I mean, there's nobody uh, left. Uh, uh, Not in uh, Russia. I I, I love. There's so much to talk about, and we only—I mean, no, 15 minutes. Um, I, I mean, the evolution of the floor. I—I I, I love the discussion of, uh, uh, you know, when you started, 80 what 80 percent of the trades were yeah. uh, were done there, and now what is it? I mean, um, and uh, you know, we were just at the floor, and the floor is is a fun place to go. They they yeah. they, they they hold events on the yeah. floor with food, and none of that used to be allowed. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, when I got there in in '96, um, there were four thousand people on the floor. And they did 80% of the trading in all NYC listed stocks. Today, there's 225 maybe that do 15 to 20%. This is a very good example of technological disruption. It's a really classic case study in technological disruption. And what you have to do is um, not get too nostalgic about it. There's a whole chapter in the book I talk about the need to keep pushing forward, keep finding particularly financial um, uh, technological progress. Schiller's very big on this. He talks about it all the time. And um, that's why I'm glad that I was there. I saw it at its height, um, uh, open outcry and the beauty of it. Uh, But there were uh, the public and uh, investors wanted quicker and more efficient means of of transactions. So if in terms of what I saw, I would say the biggest thing, the three big things I saw was the the growth of electronic trading, uh, the development of indexing uh, and ETFs, yeah. and the gr- awareness of behavioral finance as a factor. You know, behavioral finance purports to show how people really act, not how they're supposed to act. The classical economics and people don't buy low and sell high. And uh, one of the things I regret, and I say this in the book, is I should have paid closer attention to them in the 90s because their work was already known. And by the time Schiller's book came out, the outlines of of, uh, behavioral economics were well known. A lot of people just didn't want to believe it. Well, just you also talk believe. about you were kind of looking in uh, in the beginning in the book of two or three chapters for the Holy Grail. You were interviewing the top traders, the top performers, and you wanted to get to know what are their secrets of doing so well. Yeah, the, and you abandoned that. I mean, yes. Well, part of, it was a stupid quest because in, in 1995, you know, when you when you're, it, the, it's hard to describe what it was like in the 90s. It was so much fun. The markets were expanding, and the Netscape. Uh, IPO happened in yeah. August, and everyone was just so exuberant yeah. because of this shiny new thing called irrationally the exuberant. Exactly, <laughs> and so I had this stupid idea in my head that rather than talk to 500 traders, how about I just find like five who know everything? I call them the Wizards of Oz. These old wise men who would sit somewhere and know everything. And I spent years <laughs> in this stupid quest, going out, taking buying drinks for people, saying, "Tell me who would talk to me? Who should I talk to?" And what I discovered there is no wizard. There is no guru. I there tell people. Any. People say, Jeremy, you're the guru of Wall Street. I said, there is no guru. Yes. I mean, 
But I did learn, like kept asking so many people the same questions, like what's the secret? There were patterns. And one of the classic ones was the, the single most important thing from traders, actor traders I heard, was managing downside risk. Yeah. The upside takes care that, of itself. Yeah. But the downside doesn't. Ace Greenberg, who I, I sat next to several times when he was uh, at Bear Stearns, used to sit on the desk at Bear Stearns and always said, um, when the going gets tough, the tough starts selling. And you can't fall in love with positions. Mm. You have to be very ruthless. Uh, Buzzy Gadult, who has our kind, Gadult was a big NASDAQ market maker, sold it for a fortune to, to Merrill. Bobby, you talked about. And said, listen, praying is for Saturday and Sunday, not Monday through Friday. You talk quite poignantly about a stock you fell in love with. Oh, General Electric. Yes. Yeah. Well, in terms of market lessons, I made a decision very early on to tell people what I own. And most people never do this. And I find Too it embarrassing. inexplicable. And I, there's a whole chapter about my investing journey starting yeah. in 1993 and then meeting Jack Bogle in 1997, who changed my life. And uh, I, there is a very serious problem in behavioral economics uh, about one, – one of the mistakes people make is the, they fall prey to biases. And one of the most serious ones is overconfidence. I began buying – the minute I got my 401K, I began buying GE stock very aggressively. And by did well at the beginning. By 1999 – You're a genius. You I cannot had, lose, right? 50% of my, my 401K was in GE stock. Now, anyone will tell you that is a stupid thing to do. There's too much risk. But I was so enamored with Jack Welch, who, as you know, was a god I know. at that time. Yeah. I knew Jack, and we thought he could do no wrong, I thought, and that was a bad idea. Uh, and not only yeah. did it top out in 2000 and after Jack retired, but it continued to go down rather dramatically. So I had too much in, and then I waited too long. I made the mistake exactly that Ace Greenberg said, wait too long, two mistakes that you make. And yet I knew it. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't know this. I had to watch CNBC. I was CNBC. <laughs> I knew exactly what I was doing. And that's how these behavioral biases are so strong. Wrong. You can't get them, you know, there's there there's the loss aversion that goes on. There's overconfidence. That was the original one of Kahneman and Tversky That's right. even before Schiller right. had written about loss aversion. Right. So my point is I knew this. This is how these biases are so powerful that even when you are aware of them, you, you can still it. engage in them. At any rate, I show I, I do the one thing that I think is most important. I show this is what I own right now. When I show it to people, my heart, my highest position is the S and P five hundred. We don't have a it's lot of time. We've talked a lot with the market pod. So thirty seconds on what you want people to get out of the book, uh, what and what they yeah. why they should come read it. Yeah. Well, I think the most important thing is for people to understand how stocks for the long term. The reason why markets, the stock market tends to go up, um, of the, the importance of avoiding market timing. It is a bad idea. You have to be right going in. You have to be right going out. It doesn't work. You have to figure out a long-term plan. You've got to believe in capitalism. You've got to believe in the future of the country. You've got to be optimistic. You've got to figure out how much risk you can afford to have in the, in the, in the stock market. But I think it's higher than most people think. If you think of owning a home and Social Security as different kinds of school stools of your investment, I tell people I've had 70, 75, I'm almost 70. I've had 70, 75% of my 401ks in stocks and remain so. My clock is counting me down to 10 seconds. So so shut up and keep talking from Bob Pisani. <laughs> uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Thanks for coming to the studio. Bob, Professor Siegel, great to be back with you. Chris Pleasure. on the soundboard. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.